Well, welcome back to our last session. John Lee, can I invite you to come up to the front uh, to be grilled by uh, the, the people? Northern Ireland's uh, finest. Yeah. The voice of the people and all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, right, I'm just going to get cracking. So we've basically got uh, some questions here related to Matthew's gospel, some stuff that we've touched on over the weekend, a few more uh, generally biblical questions, and then some uh, Christian living questions. So I will start with, try, I'll go in sort of uh, the order of the, of the book. So here's your question about chapter one of Matthew. You said that you don't think the women in the genealogy at the start of Matthew are necessarily scandalous women. Michael McClanahan seemed to think it was significant <laughs> <laughs> that they have sinful pasts and even push the sinfulness of Bathsheba, which I don't think the text um, narrates or um, even in Second Samuel, but I could be wrong. Why do you think... Why do you think Matthew was? Why do you, sorry? Why do you not think Matthew was okay. focusing on their sinfulness? Ma- Michael, who? <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Please, please, please tell him I said that. Um, yeah. Look, it's it's not that. Um, it's not that they're not sinful. I mean, everybody in the genealogy is sinful. Obviously, <laughs> uh, they're human beings, and they're not Christ. Um, I just think that very often that they're picked out, and I so much worse saying it in the context of I, I haven't heard Michael's uh, sermon, so I don't know what he said. He might have nuanced it in a way I don't know, but um, uh, actually, when you, when you look at them, um, Tamar, the first one mentioned, um, remember Tamar, who um, back in Genesis uh, was married to Judah's son. And then he died, then married to the next son, and then he died, and then Judah wouldn't marry her to the next son. So eventually she disguises herself uh, as a prostitute, sleeps with Judah, one of the 12 sons of, of Jacob, uh, conceives, uh, and then she is the one who passes on, the, or her son passes on Christ's line. Um, that was, what's fascinating about that is that incident ends with Judah saying, she is more righteous than I am. Um, so is disguising yourself as a prostitute and sleeping with someone a good thing? Okay, no. <laughs> Um, uh, but but she understands that she she has to pass on the covenant line. She she is um, she has been sinned against by Judah by by not being married to the next the next son, as it were. So she's acting righteously. Uh, Rahab, okay, she's a you know she's in Jericho, she's a prostitute, not good. But um, James two is it? She's used an example of, of righteousness. So it's easy to pick on the women and say, oh, they're the scandalous ones. Um, well, they've got. You could say they've all got something of a, a dodgy background, and you could link that as people do sometimes with Mary. Um, you know, the fact that Messiah's mother is a virgin. Okay, you can see how that would be scandalous. You know, really, Mary? Come on. Um, so it's 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 not a shock that the birth is an unusual one. Um, I just think that that what's most striking about them is the the fact that they're, they're all Gentiles, and that Christ. The whole emphasis of the New Testament, Christ's body, Jew Gentile. You know, Gentiles are woven into his family tree. And if you want scandal, um, I haven't got my notes here um, from from, um, the the first sermon, but you imagine the family reunion with some of these guys. um, Which of the kings is it in there uh, who ends up basically, you know, God puts him to death. They won't even um, bury him. He's so scandalous. You know, the the, the kings are scumbags. So if if you want to make the point that they are 
Jesus' genealogy is made of real sinners. You, you can do it from the man. You don't need to, to, to pick on the women, essentially. Um, as for Bathsheba, yeah, sometimes people blame Bathsheba. What are you doing up on the roof, bathing, you know, naked next to the palace? I don't know, maybe. Um, you know, there's a reason why she's not called Bathsheba. It's Uriah's wife. Um, but ultimately, David is to blame. He takes another man's wife, arranges the murder and all the rest of it. So, of course, they're not without sin. I just don't think that that's the predominant thing about them. I think if I can, as someone who was here, I can maybe attempt something of a harmonization, which was that I think Michael's point was not so much their sinfulness per se, but both their sinfulness and their gentleness but how God in his mercy used them for his purposes, which fits with what you said about how they're commanded because God's mercy comes, changes them, and hence they're commanded. So I think looking at it maybe from two different ways, but... Associated with scandal is fine. They're certainly associated with scandal. Um, Yeah. Okay, so in Matthew chapter 1, we read of the incarnation. The Son of God took to himself true humanity, and we have Jesus. Obviously, the Son of God did not cease to exist when Jesus was born or conceived, But my question is, now that Jesus is glorified in heaven, how do we view him in relation to the Trinity? I.e., he is the Son of God, but the Son of God also continues to exist unchanged. So how does the glorified Christ relate to the Trinity? Okay, um, you might need to put me back on lines if I've misunderstood the question. Um, The incarnation is an addition, not a subtraction. So Christ remains... This, let me rephrase that. The Son of God, the second verse of the Trinity, remains everything that he always was. Okay, So he doesn't lose his, I don't know, omniscience, his all-knowingness. He doesn't chop off some of his attributes. God can't do that anyway. You know, To be God, God is what theologians have called simple. Um, he's, not, he's not like a pizza made up of lots of different characteristics that you stick together, and you can remove a couple of slices of pizza and it's still a pizza. God's not like that. God is love, God is holiness, God is justice, God is... So Christ remains, the Son of God remains everything that he was before the incarnation, but in addition, he takes to himself a human nature. Um, so he's now still the one person, the person is the Son of God, that never changes, before or after the incarnation, it's the same. The person is the Son of God, one person, but the new thing post-Bethlehem, or post-conception, I suppose, in Mary's womb, is that he, the Son of God has now taken himself a human nature, not a human person, there's no person who existed that was kind of jumped on by the Son of God, but a nature is wedded to, to the divine Son. So he has two natures, the divine nature that he's always had and the human nature. And that continues. So he never stops being a member of the Trinity. He can't be. He doesn't. We, we talk in, inevitably in picture language about Christ leaving heaven, but that doesn't mean... It doesn't mean like it's a third of God disappeared or something. I mean, that's not how the Trinity works. So he... he, he he, um, he takes himself that human nature and that remains. So he goes back to heaven in the ascension in Acts 1, still with his human nature. He is in heaven now as our great priest, as a man. Um, so it, it, although he's glorified in his resurrection, he, he gets his resurrection body. Um, and that is a pattern of what our resurrection bodies will be like. He is still fully human. So what is true of Christ on earth, fully God and fully man, is true of Christ now in heaven. He is fully God and fully man. The only difference is that his humanity has gone through death and out the other side, been glorified, um, and ours hasn't yet. But, but, but there's, other than that, that, there is no, no difference. 
if that if that's not what the question was getting at, then you're gonna have to come back to me. But um, I'm sure you would agree with this. We've recommended lots of books over um, the weekend, but and, and don't let this one I would say put you off. Uh, you could do nothing better this Christmas than find it on Amazon. Um, read Athanasius on the incarnation of the Word of God. And you're think, whoa, I'm gonna read something from the fourth century. It is. It's got C.S. Lewis has an introduction, so good Northern Irish connection. And there's, I remember there's a bit in that where Athanasius talks about specifically how Christ comes in the flesh, but he's not limited to the flesh. Sure. Um, so and that, if that sounds intimidating, don't. It, there's a reason it's still being published 1,600 years later, because it's, it's so easy to read. Yeah, so you mustn't think that when, when the Son of God became man, sorry, I'm turning myself away, when the Son of God became man that he... Um, if you like, that everything was just contained in that body. So, so even whilst Jesus is on the fishing boat in Galilee, he's also, according to his divine nature, omnipresent. Okay, you know, he's he's God. He can't. He doesn't give up those God attributes. Even when he's being crucified, okay, he is sustaining the universe. Even when he doesn't know how to speak according to his human nature, he's got to learn, hasn't he? Luke two, he learns. He, Jesus, according to his human nature. When he's a day old, can't speak, talk, walk. If you said, where are you from? He probably wouldn't say anything because he can't speak. He wouldn't understand you, according to his human nature. But at the same time, according to his divine nature, is all-knowing, yeah, omnipresent, all-powerful. He's sustaining Mary, who is feeding him you know, uh, mother's milk. So it's an extraordinary mystery in incarnation. Um, you've got to maintain both natures in their full integrity. Um, you, you can't mix them together and come up with Jesus as this kind of hybrid half man, half God. You know, you get these animals where you cross a horse and a zebra and you get, you know, um, these weird, I can't remember what they're called, or a tiger and a lion, you get a liger. Have you ever seen those? Kind of weird cross animals. You mustn't do that with Jesus. Um, everything that's true of a man, save sin, is true of Christ. And at the same time, everything that's true of God is true of Christ. So uh, moving on to Matthew chapter four and question about Matthew 4, but also how it applies to us. In Matthew 4, verse 1, it says, The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness yeah. to be tempted. Does that mean that God leads us into temptation intentionally and therefore is controlling and therefore is controlling Satan and who Satan tempts when he, I think that's God, tempts and how he tempts? Or sorry, when Satan tempts and how Satan tempts? How he tempts? <laughs> a lot of he's and tempts in there. Yeah, that's right. I was trying to balance the microphone and... Um talk at the same time yeah it's a verse i, I didn't I, I should have picked up on more it's fascinating isn't it um I, I said i think my third point last night was the attack on jesus son of god it might have been better the attack of jesus um the son of god it's it, it's not that you know he's minding his own business and the devil pounces on him you know the, the spirit drives him out into the desert you know there, he is going to face uh, satan uh, the, the spirit leads him to be tempted that's the purpose it's not, it's not an accident or a surprise attack. It's not an ambush. He, he goes out to war. Um, so is God sovereign over the devil? Absolutely. Um, there is nothing in this universe that is not under God's control. Okay, no, no, um, no molecule is outside of his control. The, the devil is, is under God's control. Think of the book of Job. Do you remember the start of Job? Where, where Job has to go to God to ask permission to to put Joel on trial, Job, sorry, on, on trial. Um, and without God's permission, Satan can't do anything. He's a creature. Um, Luther called him God's devil. Okay, it's a striking phrase, isn't it? God's devil. He's on a leash. Now, he, 
Again, there is mystery here. He is evil, and God doesn't delight in evil. And James, oh, I can't juggle a Bible. Uh, in James 1, uh, James says, Let no one said, say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God is not trying, if you're feeling under pre- temptation pressure, God is not trying to trick you into sin. The devil is his own agent as well. Um, and temptation is never blamed on God in the Bible. It is blamed on Satan. But somehow in the mysterious providence of God, um, that is not outside of God's control. Um, so I, I realize there are loose ends there, but I think there are loose ends that, that aren't tied up fully by scripture. But there's also huge comfort. Um, you know, that, as is often said, it's not as if we're in a fight. Um, I'd actually know the result. It would have happened last night, wouldn't it? Wilder Fury, the big boxing match. Is that last night? Um, it was a draw. Oh, interesting. Okay, I'll, I'll talk to yeah, John Graham's your man on that. Anyway, last night, big fight, you know, big boxing match, two heavyweight champions. Who's going to win? Um, no one knew. The pundits split. And it's not like that with God and the devil. We know who's going to win. God is in charge of him. He's more powerful. Satan isn't almighty. Satan isn't all powerful. And yet, mysteriously, for some reason, he's on a, he's on a leash but he can still cause damage for now. So moving on in Matthew chapter 4, it says, Jesus went about teaching the gospel and healing all manner of sickness among the people. Should we expect to see both today? Um, the first thing I'd say, I, we didn't spend much on it this morning. I, I, I'm also a little bit nervous when people just go straight from, look, Jesus did this, so we do this. Jesus does all sorts of things that you're really not called to do. Jesus walks on water. Don't try and walk on water. Um, Jesus turns water into wine. Don't don't bother. <laughs> okay, he says all sorts. So the move, the simplistic move, Jesus did it, we do it, is just too naive. Okay, Jesus. Um, if you're talking about passing on Jesus' ministry, the, the New Testament shows how that is done. He passes on the ministry to the apostles first. The apostles and the prophets are the foundation. Ephesians two twenty. They're the foundation of the church, um, and then that ministry is passed on to the uh, pastor, teachers, elders, again, whatever you want to call them. Um, What's really interesting, I think, is when you get when you look at what the, the the next generation are told to do. So look at what Timothy is told to do, or Titus. There is nothing about heal the sick. Okay, they're just simply not told to do it. They are not told to do anything miraculous. Um, they are told to preach, to teach. Um, so I don't, I don't think, and this is where I, I don't quite know what the castle's kind of doctrinal position is or anything like this. This I, I know this is a debated position among evangelicals, okay, so, you know. But I, I don't think today anyone has the kind of healing ministry of Christ and the apostles. Um, so two, at the end of 2 Corinthians, the sign of the apostles is that they can do these miraculous things. Um, it marks them out as apostles. I just don't think that's given to anyone today. Um, now, do I pray for healing? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Um, you know, Jay, end of James, you know, if you're sick, go to the elders, anoint you with oil, pray. Absolutely. Does God heal miraculously? Absolutely. Can God do miracles? Absolutely. That, 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 that's undebated. The point is, has anyone got the authority like Christ or, as he gave to the apostles, to click their fingers and say, take your mat and walk or cleanse of leprosy with a touch? No, because that is a special office given to those, well, Christ, obviously, but then the apostles as his foundation stone representatives you mentioned walking on water there's a, there's a picture from a few years ago of brian o'driscoll walking on water are you saying that he he couldn't do that no brian 
<laughs> a couple of questions that are sort of in the same ballpark. Um, and this, I don't know, people in England are very polite, and I'm sure they would have uh, obeyed your injunction here, but not here, not in Northern Ireland. Um, <laughs> you avoided the gifts statement earlier. What is your view on the gifts? Uh, and then, second question, sorry, exclamation mark. Do you believe tongues is legitimately present and used today? Am I allowed to say what I think? I mean, is, that, is that right? We're, we're freebies? Okay, here you go. Um, uh, when people ask, what do you think on the gifts? I assume you're meaning the, the sort of miraculous gifts, prophecy, tongues um, in particular. Um, uh, let me tell you briefly what I, what I think. Um, in 1 Corinthians, let me go back. In Acts 2, tongues or languages. We've really confused ourselves by using this word tongues. It's just a word for languages. Okay, just translate it as languages every time, and that's really going to help you. So Acts 2, they're speaking in different languages. And then when tongues or languages happen throughout the book of Acts, I think that's the same thing. They're just speaking different languages. So I'd assume the same when you see the gift in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. In 1 Corinthians 14, languages or tongues and prophecy are tied together. So they seem to be the same in content. It's just one is in an ununderstandable language and one is in a, a comprehensible language um, that's why Paul says that the prophecy is greater in verse 5 unless tongues are translated the implication being if they're translated then they're the same so I think the content is the same they're prophecy so the question really hangs what is prophecy um, now I think the New Testament says New Testament prophecy is the same as Old Testament prophecy so I think Ephesians 2.20 the, the church is built on the uh, the word of the apostles and the prophets. Those are New Testament prophets, okay, not Old Testament. It's the apostles first, then the prophets. And in a few verses later, he says that the, the gospel has been revealed to the apostles and prophets in the way it wasn't in the Old Testament. So, okay, so there's the New Testament prophets. So that alongside the 12 apostles, or 13 if you include Paul, there were these men, uh, and sometimes women, who were given the, the gift of prophecy, who could speak the very word of God. And the only person we meet in the New Testament who actually says anything as a prophet is Agabus. And when he speaks, he says, thus says the Holy Spirit, which is just what the Old Testament prophets said, thus says the Lord. So that he doesn't do the kind of, I feel like the Lord is saying to me that, you know, perhaps you're being called to ministry or perhaps you ought to move to another church or perhaps you ought to, you know, I just get a sense that, no, no, no. Thus says the Holy Spirit. He is speaking God's word. Um, and the other thing described as prophecy in the New Testament is the book of Revelation. So, so I think prophecy is authoritative revelation from God. Uh, it's not this sort of sense or, or impression or vague whatever. Um, therefore, I think it's finished with the apostles and the prophets. No one has that direct revelation anymore because, frankly, that we have now all we need. In Corinth, if you were a Christian in Corinth when the, the letter to the Corinthians arrived, you didn't have the book of Romans and the book of Ephesians and the book of John and the book of Matthew. And the, you probably just had the book of Corinthians. You know, Corinthians was written before most of the Gospels. So, so you, in order to have the gospel message, you needed someone to be able to speak the word of God to you. That's very short and nuanced. It's probably offended half the room. I'm sorry. I, let me just add this caveat. That certainly doesn't mean that if that I think that if you're speaking in tongues, it's somehow satanic or, you know, you get these ridiculous overreactions. That's not at all the case. Um, I just think that that gift has passed. So what is going on when people speak in tongues today, I do not think is what's going on in Corinthians. A couple of sort of more theological questions. Uh, number one. More theological. Yeah. <laughs> well, 
in the sense that... He th- those, didn't write the last answer then. Those, that was were, <laughs> those were sort of... Well, so was, yeah. Uh, uh, well, this is theology proper. Can God change his mind? Uh, no. That's the theological answer. Um, no, God, God, God doesn't change his mind. Um, he's not a God who turns, uh, who repents. Um, now, and he, you know, he knows the end from the beginning. Uh, he knows all things, so it's just, and he's in control of all things. So you know, there is no changing in that sense. Um, now, as things are revealed to us, uh, then then it can appear to be the case. And the Bible will use that language of him, God relenting, even repenting strikingly occasionally. Um, but all the language in the Bible about God is necessarily picture language. We, we're used to that with things like, you know, God is a rock. And no one thinks God is made of stone. Okay? Like, you know, you just know straight away. You know, the Lord is our shepherd. You don't think of God as actually a shepherd. When Jesus says, I am a gate, it just never occurs to you. He's made out of wood or something. You know, it's just, now, we know that straight away. But that is the true of all language about God. Okay, when you say God is holy, what does that actually mean? Or God is love. If you push it, what does that actually mean? God is spirit. What does that actually mean? If you push and push, you, I don't really know. There is mystery in all language about God. It's all picture language to help us. Calvin says that God lisps. You know, it's like baby talk to us. Um, so that is true, I think, of, of passages you know, like after the flood or when he appoints Saul as king, where, where God you know, relents or repents. It doesn't mean he actually made a mistake or he's surprised, or he has a change of plan. Um, everything else in the Bible lets us know that he is sovereign over everything, knows everything. That, that's just an impossibility. And he'll even say at times, I'm not a God who repents. Um, so he'll say the two things in the same chapter sometimes. I do not repent, I do repent. So how do you make them work together? Well, the, the repentance is as it, or relenting or changing of the mind is as it seems to us. Um, and that's to encourage us to be active. We're not robots. We're not passive. We're not puppets on a string. So sometimes, for example, think of Jonah. What, what's the message of Jonah? It's not repent and believe and you might be saved. It is God is going to destroy the city. But the Ninevites repent, sackcloth and ashes, and then God does relent. Well, just a minute, God, you said you were going to destroy Nineveh. Have you, have you changed your mind? Well, as far as we would see from a human perspective, trapped in history, yeah. Um, because of the repentance, you know, that God responds to prayer. If you want to ask a really big question, did God know in advance that when Jonah preached, the Ninevites would respond and he therefore would relent? Yeah, sure. Um, What's the difference between a covenant and testament, and then how does that relate to the work of Christ? Can I recommend a book? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, basically, covenant and testament are the same word. So we talk about the New Testament and the Old Testament. And really, we're talking Old Covenant, New Covenant. Uh, in some ways, it's a shame we call them the New Testament and Old Testament because we think that means, I don't know, a collection of books or something. It's the same word, okay? They're obviously, English words, um, but derived from sort of underlying words that, that, were this, that were the same thing. Um, so I wouldn't get too tied up on the difference. There is, there's one place in Hebrews where it seems that... Um, oh, where is it? Someone could think of it quicker than I can. Where it seems that the, the, the author of Hebrews, whoever they may be, um, particularly talks about the death of the person and that brings in the blessings. So a bit like a will, a last will and testament sense of the word. You know, when uh, you know, the, the father dies, the blessings go to the son. So occasionally it's used in that sense in, in Hebrews. But I think basically they're just interchangeable terms. Um, yeah, have you got the verse? No. 
that's fine. It's in Hebrews, promise. <laughs> uh, I can't think quick enough to find where it is. No, I was looking up uh, the verses for the next question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, from the Olivet Discourse, as in the days of Noah, so will it be in the com- in, with the coming of the Son of Man. Does this mean we are due to see a resurgence of the Nephilim in the last days? <laughs> Do you know, I, 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 uh, the first time I came to Northern Ireland, I, I, um, I was down in Lurgan. I got taken to this amazing bookshop. Um, what is it? Is it ICM Books? Is that what it is, John? This sheds and sheds of Christian books. And um, I texted someone, I got this section on creation uh, and 24-hour creationism. And I took a photo of it, a huge number of books on creationism. Texted a photo of it to my Northern Irish friend saying, our classic Northern Irish bookshop, bigger section is on creationism. Then I found the section on the last days, and it was five times as big. Another photo, stand corrected. Um, I, no, I don't think. So as in the days of, of Noah, the, the point in, in, um, in that Olivet Discourse um, comes up in the, in the, the Synoptic Gospels. Um, the point of the comparison with Noah is that um, you know, life is carrying on. Um, so Matthew, it's Mark 13, or Matthew... We'll get to it, Matthew 20, 24, verse 4. 37. Thank you. Um, you know, what does he ta- say? Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not that the angels in heaven, nor the sun. Interesting, not that on earth, Jesus, no, Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back. What does that do for your doctrine of the incarnation, by the way? How does Jesus not know? If you do Christian Explored, someone always asks that. If you said Jesus was God, God knows everything, he doesn't know when he's coming back. Okay, what's the answer? The answer is that according to his human nature he doesn't know and jesus is living as a true man okay he's not cheating and just turning on his god powers every now and again or whatever he's living truly as a man we meet him as a man in the gospels um so he doesn't know according to his human nature he does know according to his divine nature you now want to say well what about the psychology of jesus is he just choosing whether to say oh i don't know no idea okay who understands the mind of christ definitely not me um but he, he knows and doesn't know in the same way as he is omnipresent and not omnipresent all at the same time there you go that's answering another question um <laughs> As in those days at the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. The, the point of the comparison is not that everything is going to be the same. Very obviously, it's not going to be a flood that, that sweeps over the earth. We're not going to be rescued by a boat. You know, they're not, it's not exactly the same. So I don't think there'll be Nephilim again. But rather, it's going to come suddenly and, and people will be just doing their normal life stuff when Christ returns. How do officers, in scare quotes, relate to prophet, priest, and king? And how do regular church members relate to prophet, priest, and king yeah. when they, or as they fall under the priesthood of all believers? So ultimately, we only have one prophet, priest, king. We, we only have Christ. Um, so I don't think it's helpful to say, I don't know, uh, you know, the minister is the prophet, the elder is the king or something i don't know how you do it even but i'm not sure that's particularly helpful um it is true so those were those were all anointed messiah offices um i think it's i think it's fair to say that the heidelberg catechism um talks about the fact that we are anointed too so you know in christ um because we are anointed with the holy spirit then we have a priestly ministry think of the priest of all believers you know one peter um you know we are the intermediaries intermediaries in a sense between god and the world we praise god as the priest did um uh you know man is given you know we're prophesied in the new testament uh, and particularly promises of heaven you know we'll rule sit on thrones kingly ministry in that sense we have authority in that sense 
Um, again, only in the name of Jesus, but in the name of Jesus, we can pray and you know, authority uh, comes. Uh, what was the other one? Priest, prophet. We have prophetic. You know, we preach the word to the, to the world around. So there is a sense in which that lies on all, all believers, the church in general. Um, I think it is also fair to say that that, that church officers, elders, say, or ministers, whatever you want to call them, um, they are under shepherds. Um, Christ is the true shepherd. They are under shepherds. And therefore, because he exercises his ministry through them, then you will see aspects of his prophetic, priestly, and kingly ministry worked out in the church life. So Christ still preaches to us through his word and through his, his ministers. Um, comes, preaching comes through men. Um, he rules over us. So, you know, church discipline matters. Who's in and who's out of the kingdom, at least as far as we can tell visibly. That is in the hands, ultimately, of the the church officers and different systems work in different ways, but um, you know you are under the authority. We're told several times in the New Testament just submit to our leaders, not just to Christ. Um, so that there is an, a way in which their ministry shadows, but really it's His ministry exercised through them. What would your advice be on how to wait biblically? Much of of life we spend waiting for things, and the Bible talks a lot about waiting on God. What does it look like to wait actively slash biblically? That's a really interesting question. It's a really good question. Um, in, in essence, 90% of the blessings of the Christian life are future. Okay, think, think of what is to come, and it just so vastly outweighs what we've been given now. That's not to undermine what we've been given now. Okay, the spirit of adoption, we're justified already. We know God already. Um, Eternal life is promised to us, certainly. So with loads of blessings now. And yet there is so much more to come. Um, yeah, 90%, whatever, pick to figure. But the vast majority of our blessing is to come. And that really is just to up the greatness of heaven and the new creation, not to downplay the, the blessedness of being a Christian now. But we need a realism about, we are now a pilgrim church. We are aliens, to, to use the language of, of 1 Peter. Um, sojourners, to use the very unhelpful words of the... ESV, um, what's a sojourner? Um, so, it, you, you, <laughs> in some ways you feel so terrible saying this, but your, your life ultimately is going to be one of massive disappointment because because none of your earthly dreams exactly will come f- come come true. Um, you know, you might be blessed in all sorts of other ways that aren't promised ways. So many of you will be blessed with spouses, but ultimately one of you will die. Uh, many will be blessed with children, um, and tragedy strikes. Um, parents die, children die. They, there's just an end to all earthly blessings. So even when you, even when you've been blessed in a kind of earthly way, it's only a temporary way. So I, I think waiting on the Lord ultimately has it, it means having our focus on on heaven uh, or on His return. Um, and learning to be content even when we don't get all the earthly blessings we'd like now. Um, and and, and as, as to how you do that, it, it is, well, the secret, you know, Paul talks about the secret contentment, you know, I've learned to be content in all circumstances. Um, I, I think it has to be focused on being, ple- being so delighted what we have now, Christ, and knowing him, that that is enough for us now, even if we don't get the other things we, we want. And it's legitimate to want these things. I think sometimes we're made, you know, we're, 
we're single and we're made to feel guilty for wanting to be married. That's fine. Okay, you don't need to feel guilty for wanting to be married. If you want to be married, pray that God will give you a, a husband or a wife. That's not sinful. That's not idolatrous. I think sometimes our idolatry track is so unhelpful. You know, people, people say, um, oh, you know, in the Old Testament, we, we'd think idolatry is just bowing down to a statue. But let me tell you, you're an idolater. You know, what, what's your greatest hope in life? There's your idol. Well, not necessarily. You know, it's all, it's all right to want a career, a husband. Well, these, are, these are creational gifts. Now, if you say, I will not be happy and I will not obey God until I have them, that's idolatrous. But it's not wrong to have longings. Um, but we just have to recognize they, that, that some of our earthly desires for these things, spouse, children, wealth, whatever it might be, they're not promised to be fulfilled. So waiting on the Lord, you know, perhaps we're suffering medically and... There's not an absolute promise that I'll be healed now, but there is an absolute promise I'll be healed then. So it's that future-focused. Um, Christ is enough for me now, and heaven is going to be so glorious that it's worth waiting and not giving up on Christ now to try and snatch as many little you know, rubies as I can in this earth, forsaking eternal life. How would you recommend a person increase their overall Bible knowledge beyond daily devotional reading if full-time... Theological study isn't an option. What's the first bit? How do you? Uh, how how would you grow in, uh, increase knowledge. your Bible knowledge beyond devotional reading, but not being able to do full time study? Uh, I mean, it's good, great desire. Um, the, the primary way God feeds us is through church on a Sunday. I think we've got so obsessed with our own personal studies, me, my Bible, and Jesus, that we m- miss at the, the main sense. The main way God feeds us is on, on Sunday through the, you know, the Sunday service, the preaching of the word, the you know, Lord's Supper, um, that, that corporate gathering. If you think about it, through most of church history, let me put it this way. How many commands are there in, in the Bible to read the Bible? To individual Christians, you must read the Bible. Arguably none. Because, frankly, for most of the history of God's church, people A, can't read and B, don't have a Bible. So God doesn't command the literally impossible. Okay, if the command, if you can't be holy without personally reading the Bible, until the what the twentieth century, most Christians can't obey God. You know, he doesn't do that. Now we're told loads of times, millions of times, to hear the word and then to meditate on it. So don't mishear me. Okay, but the most of the ways for most of church history that the Bible has gone into people's lives is through Sunday. They turn up, the minister preaches, reads, and preaches. Probably because he's the only one who can read and preach. That's still true in most of the world today. Most of the church, okay, people struggle to get Bibles in their own language. Someone preaches. And, um, so that is the main way you're fed. So you, you should never feel that unless I can get something extra than that, I'm, I'm missing out. Okay, the, the, God's means are sufficient for you. Now, having said that, we live in a world where so, we're blessed upon blessed. Um, so there are really good resources out there that will help you. There's loads of good stuff online. Just, just one that comes to mind because I use it quite a lot. And I think it's absolutely excellent. Um, Reformed Theological Seminary in America have got an app, RTS, and they upload a load of their courses for free. And they're just excellent. So I just stick them on in the car, listen. You know, doing the washing up, stick them on, listen to their courses. Um, and they're, they're superb. There's loads of good resources like that. Other people will be able to tell you more. Um, you know, we, again, I, I don't want to be wrongly moralistic about this, but the hours we spend watching Netflix and TV and doing all these other things, if even a third of that time was given listening to this sort of stuff, we'd grow spectacular, I suppose. 
couple of questions that they're different questions, but I think uh, similar in a way, and so maybe try and deal with them both at the same time. First one is, what is the place of feelings in a Christian's life? What do I do when I, I don't feel I love God's word, although I know I do? So feelings in the Christian life. And then another question, what do I do with the fact that I get paralyzed with fear at times, worrying about my family and friends and what could happen to them? So feelings yeah. and, and worry, obviously, which, which is a feeling. Yeah, thank you. Feelings in general. Oh, it, we, we, the first thing to understand is we're just so different, human beings. Yeah, feelings are not bad. You know, sometimes, I don't know the, the church over here, sometimes in England you get the impression amongst the more sort of conservative evangelicals that feelings are just to be distrusted. And no, God made us with emotions. Emotions are not a bad thing. You read through the Gospels and you'll see Jesus, you know, because he is a man, a human being, expressing all sorts of emotions. Um, there's an essay on that, by the way. B.B. Warfield, The Emotional Life of Our Lord, if you want to look that up free online. Amazing. You know, Jesus obviously loves, he shows anger, um, you know, compassion, and just on and on. So it is, feelings are a part of what we are as human beings, but it's, it's just obvious that, that we feel in different ways. You know, English people, we're reserved and, uh, you know, we don't emote. Um, and we, I, I think it's important that you don't tie your salvation to how you feel about your salvation. You're saved by putting faith in Christ. Um, and then the reason you're saved is you're then clothed in Christ's righteousness. It is an alien righteousness. It's where you know, he cloaks you. It is his righteousness that saves you, not your feeling of love for God or your feeling of savedness. Or... Now, yes, the spirit then comes and grows fruit in your life. But ultimately, that fruit is, a, is obedience. Um, you know, if, you're, if you're trying to live a life of obedience to God's word... That even if sometimes, frankly, you don't feel super excited or whatever, that doesn't mean you're not you're not saved. Now, you know, you pray that joy would grow. Um, you know, that that love in that sort of affection sense would grow. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. But don't judge God's love for you on your feeling, because actually we're so corrupted by sin and weakness and our you know the tie it's fascinating that the tie between how we feel and just our physiology is there it's mysterious but it's there um so don't don't think that you must feel emote sense god's love all the time or your love for him otherwise you're not saved no no the work of christ first of all is objective before it's subjective it's out there before it's in there um yeah um and then just know yourself i whoever asked that question, if, if there's something you're really worried about, you know, do my feelings show that I'm not really saved? I'd really encourage you to go and talk to your minister, talk to elders, friends, whatever. They will know you and just be able to help you more one-on-one. -on, -one. on the anxiety, fear one, I really f feel for you on that one. Um, and again, I think we can be overly simplistic. You know, we quote, you know, cast all your anxieties on him. Um, but Paul talks about being anxious for the churches. Um, you know, he, he himself feels anxiety at, at times even as he tells us to do not be anxious about anything um so and you read the psalms they're full of not just of sort of joy i will praise the lord our kind of call to worship verses but you know just just my soul is downcast or you know i'm in the mire i'm slipping you know and i feel almost overwhelmed um my god my god why have you forsaken me you know it's, it's not just a psalm of christ but also his people so um fear is um, a very common problem 
uh, for us. And it's, it's definitely one I can you know, identify with, uh, anxiety. My cousin died very suddenly um, uh, about five years ago now, same age as me, more or less. We were both expecting our first children. Um, he got a headache. Three months later, he's dead. Um, I just, what is that? Not a Christian, as far as I know. Um, we were really close. And since then, I, I just, anxiety, you know, every time I get ill, I just think, right, this is going to be it. You know, and it's, and it's not rational, but that's, anxiety is like that. Your head runs away. And I, I've just learned that's something I'm, I'm personally now probably going to be susceptible to. Um, I'm really glad you didn't die on my bathroom floor on Friday night. I, 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 <laughs> I also am glad for that, as is my wife, um, I suspect. Um, so, yes, anxiety and fear, I think, are are very common. It's the most common command of the Bible is do not fear, which presumably relates to the fact that it's one of the most common problems. Um, and don't hear do not fear as then this command. You know, I'm really worried and anxious and fear. And then do not fear. Oh, great. You know, it, it's not that. It's The encouragement is always, look, you have a, Psalm 23, you have a good shepherd who has laid down your life for you. You cannot control all these things. Part of anxiety is the desire to want to be in control of these things, I think. You know, I want to know what's going on in my body that, this cough isn't lung cancer, this headache isn't a brain tumour, this, you know, when my children splutter at night, it's not because they're choking. You know, I, I, all these fears that I have personally, you know, I want to be in control of them, but I've slowly got to learn to, to, that God is sovereign and I'm not, that he's kinder than I am, he's better than I am. Um, and so cast all your anxieties on him. So it's not simple, it's not a kind of take this pill and it's job done. If you've got really strong anxiety, it's often linked with depression, I think there are medical things that can help there. I, I'm not against going to doctors in those cases at all. Just, again, how our bodies and souls are woven together is so mysterious. Don't be worried about medical help, I would certainly say, if it's a really strong thing. Um, but ultimately, it's learning to trust that because God has given us his son, he is so good, he is so for us, that he is in control of all those things that I'm terrified about. And I have to leave them in his hands. Just a few last questions. How can I meet a Reformed Baptist at the castle? Is this so that you can convert them to Reformed Presbyterianism? <laughs> or a, um... I'll be generous, and, and uh, I suspect it's not that. I suspect it's... Oh, um, okay, confusing. Romantically. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I have no idea what to say to that. I just, <laughs> I suspect that is most of the reason the castle was set up. Uh, Jeff Hay was a Reformed Baptist involved in setting it up. So was Johnny Gibson at the time. He's now been converted to Reformed Presbyterianism. The best answer for you is to become a Reformed Presbyterianism, and then the, you know, the world is your oyster. Uh, a question that you probably can't answer, but uh, I'll ask it anyway. Why do you think there's a ratio of two to one of female to male at events such as this? So, and I'm taking that last bit, at events such as this, to maybe yeah. be sort of a generalisation. Oh, it's striking, isn't it? It's really... I, I, it's a fascinating question. I, I, I'm in Leeds now. I moved to Leeds a year ago to Church Plant. I spoke on the Leeds Christian Union weekend away just a couple of months ago. I uh, walked into this room and there were 80 people on the weekend away, 70 girls and 10 blokes. And that, it's just like, what? Like, what is... Um, I, I, I don't know why. I have no idea why. Um, it, there is an imbalance. Um, I don't know if anyone has the stats on it, but it just, just empirically just seems to be an Im imbalance. And that... I don't know why the pastoral input of that is that there is, is hard for the for women because um, 
you know, I know not everybody, but most people want to get married. That is a perfectly good creational desire. And a, a massive discipleship pressure will be that there aren't enough Christian men. Um, and we don't want to make light of that. And, and there is a genuine struggle, there's suffering um, for Christ. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to compromise by marrying a, a non-Christian. Um, it goes back to that waiting question, I guess, earlier. Um, yeah. Um, so I, there's a real, real pressure on discipleship. It also, you can get daft, idealistic views of marriage. Um, so I'd say to sort of women, sometimes, you, you know, there is no Prince Charming coming. <laughs> uh, John Graham's as close as you can get. Uh, I think <laughs> he's still, I think, on the market. Uh, uh, but after that, after the rush over lunch, um, yeah, um, but, you know, you can be so idealistic, you know, where actually marriage is not this, marriage is not redemption, okay, human marriage is not redemption. Um, days gone by, you'd have had 10 people in the village to choose from, job done, you know, um, not a lot of choice, um, you know, you used to pick it. And to blokes, frankly, get on, you know, get on with it, just step up a little bit, and ideally it's you taking the lead. I'm not, I don't think it's wrong for a girl to ask a guy on a date or anything like that, but, you know, blokes, you know, take the initiative and... Um, Get, get, get on with it don't muck around with girls don't you know don't don't sort of flirt for so long until you're absolutely sure they're into you and then ask them out so you've played with their hearts for long enough that so you're not having to take any risk now you take the risk that's the whole point um so if she says no to you fine that's okay if someone says no that's all right my wife said no to me about six times but <laughs> <laughs> um in, including during going out actually so um well, and that, that is not, by the way, a charge to them badger girls. If they say no, you know, there, there were reasons why I felt it was okay to go back and ask again. But, um, yeah. Well, we're almost done, but I want to exercise my privilege as sitting here and asking a question. Um, I've genuinely always wanted to do this, which is sad. See your, your book, um, it's called Reading the Lost Ark. Did you or IBP or whenever it's being published, did anyone ever like raise the issue that it's named after a real, like you've ripped off the title from a really well-known like 1980s action adventure film? Yeah, so in America, it's called Covenants Made Simple, um, which is either patronising to the Americans uh, or, you know, um, I think, so essentially, when you, I mean, I didn't know this, I've never written before. When you write a book, um, the publishers have authority, have authority over the cover, the title, uh, endorsements, all that sort of stuff. So you write the content, but then editorially, they take over. And they kept, I mean, I don't know, yeah, I'd great and everything. They kept making suggestions. It's like, no way. Um, so they wanted to call it unconditional. And like part of the whole point of the book is that the gospel is not unconditional in every sense. And, you, you know, anyway, all, uh, so we back and forth, back and forth. And I was at, the honest answer is I was sat in the office, church office. And um, I was getting really fed up of just daft titles. And then, and so I sat with four mates and we just started writing some daft suggestions down, like long list, and emailed them in. Six months later, Radium and Lost Ark. Yeah. Um, so you, we, we knew what we were doing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. About the Indiana Jones thing, definitely. And so follow up on that, I mean, is there a trilogy here? I'm thinking Temple of Doom is yeah. like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, um, Critique of the Baptist Church. No, no, sorry. No, no, no. no. Whoa. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that was a statement purely made by John D. Rose. Oh, so <laughs> the castle is not associated with that. No, I was thinking like a, a short exposition of the, the Olivet Discourse. Yeah, nice. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that's more the, diplomatic. The Last Crusade. I'm thinking about this. The Last Crusade could be about the mission of the church yeah. because we're sent out in a spiritual holy war. 
Nice. Um, you know, where to go in a conquest of not just the promised land, but a conquest of the earth. So, yeah. now I couldn't think of Crystal Skull. Crystal Skull, uh, yeah. Uh, Golgotha, the place of yeah, both death like and blessing. Christ's, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the hill of, I don't know, Christ's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm willing to pitch it to RVP. I'm not confident. <laughs> um, but uh, that wraps us up for the questions. So, thank you very much. Um, so, give a round of applause.